Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Lucas and Vincent were not in the mainstream of gay life. I was saving body parts, such as uh, skulls. Doesn't it bother you that he's a fag? You have done me a great service. Now I must service you. And the drugs were, were always a, a cry for attention, for somebody to pay attention to me before I, you know, <laughs> kill somebody. <laughs> You can imagine what it smells like if you go into a closed room. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Buckle up, Sodomites, and welcome to the Sinister Sissies podcast, your guide to true crime and everything man-on-man and macabre. I'm your master, Jared. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm actually Sam. It's me. I'm the master for today. I've got my own filthy little slave, Finley. Yeah, hello, everyone. It's Finn here. (laughs) <laughs> Sam has been going on about how he's becoming the new Jared. I have no idea what the context is, but there you go. But I'm, I'm very excited about this case today, Sam. For context, um, Finley is an undiagnosed sociopath or self-diagnosed. Um, he says he's more of a sociopath than Jigsaw from the Saw movies. So if you were Jigsaw, like how would you kill somebody? What would your trap be? Um, that's a lot of potential defamation there, Sam. I think you're the one who's attributed sociopathy to me. Okay. All right. But sure. if I were Jigsaw... I think I would have plenty of ideas. Okay. Well, if I'm found murdered, let's just say Finley did it. So today we're actually keeping it local. Speaking of local people who may have some antisocial personality traits, um, we're, do- we're talking about the family murders. So oh, these people are sadistic. They are very sadistic. They make Jigsaw look like, I don't know, a kindergarten teacher. Jigsaw's kind of, like, he preaches compassion and empathy, right? You haven't lived your life to the fullest, so I'm going to murder you. Whereas these people don't seem to preach anything. Well, they preach, you know, hedonism, but like dark hedonism. So it's a speculated cult. Look, there is a lot of evidence out there that suggests that the family is a real unit or was a real unit. As it stands, only one person involved in any of the murders they undertook has actually been convicted. Bevan Spencer von Einem. But we'll be, you know, going into the, the few details we have about the family as a whole as well. So this will have a bit of gay rights, a serial killer and some really, really messed up cult type 
behavior going on. The family are suspected to have been involved in at least five murders between 1979 and 1983. Or probably South Australia's most infamous or controversial murder investigation, other than maybe like the Snowtown murders or something like that. The family like teetering on being an urban legend. Like there are so many different conspiracies. There are so many interviews given by like police officers or people who were in the queer scene in South Australia in the 70s and 80s. You know, it's hard to know exactly what to believe, but... The family is rumoured to have included members of the police force, politicians, and all kinds of reputable people that you would trust. Businessmen, doctors. And actually, the more you dig into this, the more credibility it has, rather than just being a conspiracy. Yes. This is why I'm so excited about this particular case. It's, It's almost unbelievable. Yes, well, Finley actually introduced me to this case. It, like, we only met a couple of times, and he was like, let me tell you about this. And I was like, wow, I'm I'm buying what you're selling here. Yeah, but you're, you're right. This family that was coined by the police is rumoured or alleged to have contained very prominent people in society. So it shows us kind of like the wide range of different people and different social standings that were involved. Correct. And some of the connection they may have had and some of the power they may have had to pull off some of these horrid crimes that have never really had answers. Bevan Spencer von Einem is the only convicted member of the family and he was only actually convicted of one of the five murders and I'm sure there are probably more murders and hundreds of assaults, but he was only actually found guilty of one and that turned out to be a high-profile figure's son and we'll get into that later. But the lesson is here, you never kill a famous person's offspring or you will get caught. So many killers that we have covered on this podcast have, you know, killed and killed and killed. They kill someone relatively well-known and it's all over for them. So just don't do it, guys. Um, and Bevan Spencer von Einem has been fiercely loyal to the family. He's never revealed any of the other members. I think which leads you either way, where some people might believe it doesn't exist, it's just Bevan Spencer von Einem, and that's like a view held by some people, whereas other people think there is this family. But he has never, ever, ever said anything. He's in prison for life. He keeps getting his sentence extended. And no, he has not revealed anything. Even though he's been interviewed multiple times by journalists, police, many different people. If you talk to someone from South Australia, they will know about this case, or these cases, I should say. So there was a cold case review that was opened in March 2008, and there was like a million bucks, you know, on reward for anyone who gave any info, but it's still, still nothing happened. Um, they even, like, were desperate enough that the police force were offering immunity to accomplices depending on their level of involvement. There was actually a known associate of the family that has come out in the last couple of years, Lewis Turter, who really creeps me to fuck out. Um, He could listen to this. He's still alive. He didn't say anything about being involved in the murders, but he has mentioned to the police and to a crime journalist that um, he would assist Von Einem in some of his antics and that he did this because he had a drug dependency and that Von Einem was supplying him with drugs. But this is the closest thing we have to another member of, you know, the family. The family was mostly a ring that may have abducted and sexually abused 150 or more young men between the 1970s and the 1980s. Just to give that context again, we're talking about the 1970s to the 1980s. Yeah, and I should be clear that the murders occurred between 1979 and 1983. So it was a four-year period, five murders. And the murders are a subset of what is alleged to be the criminal activity of the family. It goes way beyond potentially these murders, but these murders are the topic of conversation. This is a tough one to talk about because there are a lot of people who are alleged to be involved, high-profile people, and online sleuths have actually found out who these people are, but technically the information has been suppressed, and so we can't actually 
use these names, but the information is out there. And we'll give you a website at the end of the show that's going to shed a lot of extra light if you're wondering about who some of these people might have been, the kinds of people that... I totally agree. It, it's it's hard to talk about because it just seems like it's all kind of been... Let's just say I don't know. two words, Finley. Hush, hush. Hush, exactly. <laughs> so the but ba- it's right in our backyard. This story is right in our backyard. And Forget Jeffrey Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy. We're talking about these people. Some true blue psychopaths. It's known for sure that Von Arnhem couldn't have pulled off this murder or the other murders alone. And you know, Sam, that I go a bit further than that. I think it's definitely not a conspiracy. Um, it's pretty compelling. It's very compelling. It's what makes me so angry. And the forensic evidence is very clear that Von Einem did not act alone. So a little bit about uh, Mr. Sadistic Bevan Spencer Von Einem. We don't know a whole lot about his upbringing, I guess. He's, he's a local killer. You know, the American killers get all the attention. At the time, this was, you know, a gay mutilation rape murder fest. And people just weren't down for that, especially in South Australia. What we do know is that he was born 29th of May, 1946. He had an abusive father. He ha- I think he had a German background. Um, he was raped age seven by his father's drinking buddy. And when his father found out, he did nothing. So, you know, he obviously had a lot of childhood trauma, like many people we cover. When you Google him, it doesn't say murder. It actually says accountant because he was an accountant. So just your every man with a lot of darkness. He just knew how to have fun. Accountants know how to have fun. Um, yeah, he, t- he was a sadistic murderer as well. So you know, we've all got to have a side hustle, but uh, I, I feel like there are healthier ones to to pick out of the hat. Finn. Yeah, he sounded very ordinary, and I think they talk about when he goes into court the first time that everyone's astounded that such a conservative-looking white man might be behind this this very prominent murder. I mean, he looks pretty fucking scary to me. Google him, and he looks like somebody that you would see and cross the road. Not someone you would flirt back with if they tried to buy you a drink at the pills now. Probably not, Finley. I only respond to men who come over and like whisper my own name in my ear, Finley. That's that's how you win me over. Well, I'm not known. You, I don't know if you're talking about me or. If I am talking. I don't know about, who you're talking about. I am about talking about you. All right, fine. Yeah, Finley did say we we're probably going to fight during the the entire episode. So here it goes. The the barbs are starting to be drawn. So- <laughs> Subtle initially, but maybe not for long. So you know, Mister Von I'm it. So, Mr. Von Einem... Don't worry, I can't say the name either, Sam. It's actually quite hard. Try to say it three times in a row and he might appear in your house. Von Einem, Von Einem, Von Einem. (laughs) Our villain actually started this story as somewhat of a hero. In the 1970s, there were a series of assaults um, towards gay men occurring around, you know, what was known as... What we know now as Beats. And Mr. Von Einem happened to be at one on the 10th of May, 1972 where the police threw, well, allegedly, the police threw two men in a river. One of them died, and the other one he actually saved. So, you know, it was a, you know, he brought him to hospital, made sure he was all right. This particular case, it was Dr. George Duncan. Look him up. He had just come to Australia. He was a lecturer. He was thrown off a bridge and murdered because he couldn't swim. And this case actually brought about an amendment that resulted in sodomy laws, homosexuality being decriminalised in South Australia, the first state in Australia. Yes, 1975. And Von Einem somehow is wrapped up in this case. So you just think about that. He was at a beat. Now, when we get more into the story, you might see that it's a little bit suspicious that Von Einem just happened to be driving around um, the Torrens River, where some of his victims may have been associated with as well in terms of a crime scene. Yeah, look, his his intentions may not have been pure, but, you know, his acts that night, you know, were somewhat assistive. But, you know, it, it did have a positive contribution to, you know, homosexuality 
not being illegal anymore in South Australia, which is actually odd because South Australia only abolished gay panic as a defence this year. So it's weird to think they were the first to decriminalise, but then the last to get rid of gay panic. But hey, in terms of victims, it's suspected that there were hundreds of victims of sexual assault and we have five confirmed murder cases. It's worth pointing out though, Sam, that four of those murder cases have had no one charged. No. They've had, you know, attempts at charging Bevan, yeah. others, but never. They're still unsolved cases. Yeah, so we'll, we'll go into this soon, but Von Einem actually was had, was originally charged with three of the murders. There wasn't enough evidence, so he only ended up being done for one. It's kind of a theme of this story. There's never enough evidence. No, well, no one wants to go into it. No one wants to get involved. So I guess, you know, we don't even know if Von Einem was necessarily the leader of the family, but we have a lot more information about him and his habits. So Von Eyman liked to look for hitchhikers in the corner of King William Street and North Terrace over the city bridge through North Adelaide. So I don't really know much about Adelaide aside from Rundle Mall. <laughs> but yeah, he would cruise this particular route looking for victims and they would often travel in like teams, sometimes just all men, but I think usually they'd spice up and have at least one female presenting person and they would do whatever it took, I guess, to lure these young boys into their car. But even this is a bit speculative, Sam. It's a little bit speculative, but there have been people who have seen enough that we can kind of deduce this. Also, we know that they would scout areas like, you know, malls and arcades and stuff like that, trying to find, you know, young boys that they could somehow entice to, you know... It comes come back up- to what was he doing? What was old BVE doing back at that beat all those years ago? Yes. Helping gay rights along. I'm just keep bringing this up because I think these crimes go way, way back... But essentially, he probably had an esky on the back seat. It was like very Australian, and he would offer the boys, the lads, a beer uh, while driving them somewhere. Yes, and then this beer would, you know, allegedly be laced with something. It's said that, you know, a lot of people in the family, especially people that Von Arnhem would associate with, were drug addicts or people on the fringes of queer society, like trans people, quite isolated. And I guess those these are the kind of people you can lure into a cult-like situation, you know? So a lot of this information, I guess, comes from the final victim as there were a number of witnesses that heard male and female voices dragging him into a car and I guess in combination with other sources. And that's the thing. There are so many, if you research this in depth, there are so many people called like Mr. B, Mr. Blah, blah, blah. It's all kept under wraps. So we don't know exactly. There's people with question mark bags literally on their head. There are rumours that there was an apartment that some family members would share and they would bring the boys back there and, you know. But there is was one particularly fucked up story that I heard. Oh, there was a particular witness who claims that he was getting his hair done by someone who was alleged to be part of the family. I won't even mention the name because I feel like it's meant to be quote unquote suppressed. The person apparently could hear like the hairdresser and Von Einem like giggling in a part of the salon and he went over to investigate and they were like saying like, Ooh, how evil. (laughs) And then apparently when the witness went over, they had six Polaroids of like a boy who was like unconscious and being, you know, dilly dallied. And then they quickly took the pictures away and were like, oh, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. This group of sadists, one of which has been charged and convicted for the last murder we're going to talk about. But it's just this web. It's just this web of people laughing and giggling. It's so sadistic. Everyone goes, ooh, America, the worst serial killers. What is wrong with that culture? I mean, I just think we... This is so hush-hushed. I think that's why Australians are a bit in the dark about what's in their backyard. Once again, the only person who's really the focus of this is BVE because the rest of the people are just anonymous. 
Yes, it's I still don't know why, Sam. I don't know why they're anonymous. If this is court orders, it's something we, that well, I've been struggling to fully understand. Well, when I was looking up all the people that are allegedly involved, that somehow someone somehow got the information about and leaked online, but that we can't talk about, there is definitely a trend of people either being dead or high profile. So the ones who, you know, they, there is a doctor that's apparently involved, whose name we won't mention, but obviously he has enough money and success that he can probably cover things up. And a lot of the other people involved were in you know, the fringes of queer society, as I've said. They were drug users or, you know, that or the AIDS epidemic might have killed them. All right. But I think to frame this all, we really need to talk about the murders. I'm glad Finley's here with me purely because when I started reading about some of this stuff, it actually made me feel very uncomfortable. And I was saying to Finn that I, when I was having a shower, I heard a lady laughing outside the window and I was like, I just don't want to be alone right now. So I've got this big, strong man to protect me now. Yeah, you know, you did text me to, like, come over faster, but that's all right. We don't have to embarrass you tonight. So (laughs) a recurring theme with the victims, I guess, is they almost always had anal injuries. You know, it wasn't like a mild tear here and there. It was like, you know, there have been things stuck up there. There have been things done that should never be done to a person. And they almost always had traces of sedatives, most commonly Noctec, in their system. And surgical mutilation was also involved. So just for everyone at home, the Noctec is, like, chloral hydrate. Very like old school Bond villain type sedative. So that original one, you know, you pour in the martini and okay. off they go. So the first known victim, Alan Arthur Barnes, age 16, he was murdered at some point in 1979. He was last seen hitchhiking by a white Holden sedan, which had three or four people. You know, I guess we can speculate members of the family. Um, his body had been severely mutilated and dumped in the South Power Reservoir, northeast of Adelaide. Also, I just want to say, like, this is the first time where witnesses have described more than one person um, dragging someone into a car. Yes. So I believe, yeah. So the victim's name is Alan Barnes. Mm-hmm. Um, you can keep going, Sam, but this is the first time. You just pay attention to that. This is the first time that a lot of witnesses are saying that there are more than one person involved. The post-mortem examination revealed that Barnes had died of massive blood loss from an anal injury. It's speculated to be a large blunt object. So I don't even want to think about what that probably was. Um, he'd been beaten and tortured. Noctec was found in his blood, suggesting he'd been drugged. I think someone described it as, apparently in some forensic reports, a wattle-shaped object. Okay, a wattle-shaped... So I don't know if... What's a, can... I don't even, what's a wattle-shaped object? I don't think it's something you pick up from Club X, but okay. I, 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 I don't want to know. Our second victim, Neil Muir... Age... Sam has not been doing well with the name so far. Excuse me, I'm trying. So I'm here as the support person. Okay. He was speculated to be murdered in August 1979, so it's thought that Alan was probably killed maybe around June. So well, let's just say two months later. So he'd been dissected and neatly cut into many pieces, placed in a garbage bag and thrown in a river. Okay, so here's where it gets really messed up. His head was cut off and tied to his torso of a rope, passed through the mouth and out the neck. The cause of death was massive blood loss from an anal injury. In this case, it might not be such a bad thing because it sounds like all the things that were done to his body, we can only hope that they were done after he was dead. It just comes back to the gay rights issue as well. This is, I think, one of the first victims known about murder victims where heroin or drug use was um, a, a big feature. You know, they, this person was well known to police. It was, you know, he was pitched as a drug user. Yes. And interestingly, he was also speculated to have had a sexual relationship with Von Einem four years prior to his death. And Noctec was also found in his system, the same sort of date rapist drug that was found in the first victim, Ellen Barnes. A connection was made in both of these cases. Also, the media started portraying the victims as like drug users or sort of wayward boys. And I think that Neil Muir really fit this He fit MO. the description. And then where it's still at the point now, I don't think the police, I think they just kind of interviewed him maybe once and then just left him. Oh, nice white guy. Oh, 
good accountant from yep. the suburbs. All right, goodbye. Even though his name is now starting to crop up. Yeah, and I think that yeah, there were there were always throughout almost all the murders, one Island's name was being tipped off and and thrown around, but the police didn't seem to do a whole lot. And the public weren't really paying much attention at this point because, as I said, the media were portraying the victims as these kind of, like, naughty boys. Um, so, you know, not like someone, not the boy next door, your favourite, Finley. There is clearly some appeal that was there. Yeah, of a sexual nature. Which, which I think we'll, which we'll come back to this theme. It's, this is not just, these are not random attacks. Yes, well, they definitely had a type, let's say that. So our next victim, Mark Andrew Langley, age 18, he was murdered in February 1982. So his body was found in a scrub in the Adelaide foothills nine days after he went missing. Among the mutilations was a wound that appeared to have been cut using a surgical instrument. So like from his like belly button, pubic region, and part of his small bowel was missing. The cause of death was massive blood loss from anal injuries. And also a date rape drug was found in his system, but this, it was a different one this time, but it was Mandrax, which was quite popular in the 70s disco scene. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So that's um, methoqualune. Oh, you remember um, The Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. That's the one they're always talking about, the lewds. Okay. But well. you can't buy them any any longer. I don't think millennial or Gen Z people have ever had a high on lewds. Not saying that I have. They're only available through some like niche Indian companies now and mostly abused in South Africa, I think. Well, but they were very big. They were like the original, you know, Xanax. And as Finley pointed out to me earlier before we started recording, um, the, level, the surgical style performed on this victim, I believe it was, was correct was just too good to be like an amateur surgeon this is where it really starts going this accountant from the suburbs really this guy has a perfectly stitched wound with someone going in to take an object out of his rectum the police think Mm -hmm. because it might have identified the perpetrator it's getting yeah so this is when you know People like this alleged doctor, people are like, ding, 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 like this is, there probably are more people involved. And the police have always said that they know more people were involved. They've just never been able to make a conviction. So our next victim, Peter Stogneff, aged 14, so yeah, very young. He was thought to be killed in August 1981. His skeletal remains were found over a year later, though, despite him being murdered before Mark Andrew Langley. So these are all young people. This is a 14-year-old now. And from my understanding, he was on his way to school and just never came back. There couldn't be too much determined about his remains because there was a farmer who was doing some burning off and clearing his property. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And that's when the body was found, so it was quite burnt. I think the the farmer found the skull. But when they found the rest of the body, there were signs that matched... It's kind of similar mutilation, especially what was done to Neil Muir. Mm. So 
They were thought to be connected. There were dozens of reports of young men who were picked up and offered drinks, who were drugged and taken in by alleged members of the family. They were often hitchhikers or transient people, another common theme. In stories that we cover here, the victims... These killers are very good for scouting out people that they can get away with doing fucked up shit to. Yeah, and I think this comes back... I think a lot of people... Maybe this is a reason why this case hasn't blown open and why there isn't a, a big... That there hasn't been more of an inquiry because, you know, we're living in a time where, you know, potentially these sexual assault victims are ashamed of what happened. They, yeah. they, they wouldn't want to talk about it. So just to remind everyone, we're talking even before the murders now. We're talking 1973 and earlier when some of these... These are definite cases that have happened. And these are people who identify as straight, straight men who have been um, lured by people into a home drugged and raped, often with the promise of alcohol and women. After Peter Stogneff's death, we still weren't really getting much in the way of like sympathetic portrayal in the media. It wasn't until our final victim. And as I said at the start of the show... This is where the case starts to become big. Yes, Pick your victims wisely, murderers. The final victim, Richard Kelvin, he was murdered in July of 1983, only 15 years old. So he was the son of a popular local news presenter, Rob Kelvin, who I believe is still to this day. Like, he is. Yeah, he's still... And like, my understanding is very famous. Yes. Just for Melbourne people, you know, think of Neil Mitchell. American listeners think Diane Sawyer. So, think you know, Diane Sawyer. All right. So, you know, someone who's quite high profile. And so obviously this was not a good idea. Um, so witnesses heard raised voices of men and one woman. And I guess that, that was the struggle when they were taking him into the car. Um, so so there he, were witnesses here that confidently identified that there were definitely more than one person involved in some struggle. Yes. And the voice of a woman. Yes. And yeah, he was seen wearing a dog collar, which apparently he was wearing for a joke when he was like hanging out with a friend. He was wearing a dog collar. Just to bring it back to what we were saying before, Sam, the sexualization of the boys. I don't really know... I think it is youth the key here. I think I think yeah. I think youth is definitely the key. There weren't any victims. The golden youth that I've heard of that were over thirty. Even twenty five is the oldest <laughs> one. As per the other victims, his cause of death was revealed to be massive blood loss from an anal injury. Once again, the blood loss from an anal injury. Yes. So we're up to four now. A large blunt, large blunt object, and. His blood but initially thought to be not connected at all, you know, because that's the usual MO of a, of, of a murder. Yes. Well, Massive blood loss from an anal injury. Hmm. I mean, I guess it took a victim from a high-profile family to get the ball rolling and get this murder investigation properly underway. And he was found to have um, hypnotic drugs, including Mandrax and Noctec. Same drugs yes. again. Noctec seemed to be the favourite here. Hair and fibres from Von Arman's home were found on Kelvin's body and clothing. So but this very strongly connects him back. Here's the case that really, really... I suppose it starts you off. This is the case you go, oh, this is the, the main one. And it's, as you said, because, you know, he's famous. Uh, well, his dad was. His dad is famous, yeah. So it's like a, it's, a, it's a massive um, news story that's picked up by the media. Likely based on the forensic evidence who have been tortured for weeks. Yeah. Weeks. And this is likely what happened to the other victims as well even though not as well publicised. It seems like it was one big fucked up game to Von Arnhem and the family. So, I, yeah, I don't think they let any of these boys go easy. So over the course of these murders, as, as we've mentioned earlier, police had been receiving tips that were either anonymous or are still suppressed, but they were linking Von Arnhem to the crimes. They'd already interviewed him a number of times. Yeah, once again, we're, we're coming... These people, Mr. Yeah. B yes. and Mr. R, who we'll hear about. Still to this day, they're Mr. B, yes, Mr. R. Who the hell they are, but... The police eventually, I guess because of the attention that this was getting, 
And this is when I guess people could were finally seeing like this could be my son, you know, like this is something I can relate to because this is like a sort of like a golden family who are now embroiled in this saga. Of course, and this is also where the police, you know, not um, well, as did- we're hearing also who may or may not have thrown a gay person into a river not long before this incident, finally click that this name has been coming up repeatedly. Yes, yeah, so then the police actually did their job. And when they did a search, they saw that Von Arnhem had a prescription to Mandrax, which was found in some yeah. of the victim's blood. So essentially they were at a loss. They went and looked at all the scripts that were um, given out. Anyway. Well, this is also where the speculation of this particular doctor comes but, in. But they found that he had been prescribed thousands yes, of actually, these tablets. Thousands. I, Not just like something you have for sleep or as a regular medication. Like a, a huge supply. Yes, I do remember. I can't remember the exact number, but I've got it somewhere in my notes. It was like thousands and thousands of pills, though. It was a lot. It was um, enough to have many restful, amazing sleeps, put it that way. Yes. Von Arnhem was actually quite compliant with the police. He he went down willingly. Yes. Although he, I think he did ask for a solicitor at first. He did, yes. But he did say that the drugs were his. But, but I, boys and girls, maybe it's a good idea to ask for a solicitor. Yes, always ask I, I, for that, a lawyer. That grows on me, that, that idea. Well, you more can, and more. You can keep that in mind when you when the police are knocking at your Don't door. Don't talk fin. to the police. <laughs> so the police also found a bottle of Noctec, one of the drugs that was found in almost every victim's system. Behind, I can't. Was it? Behind it was in a, a carry bag uh, and behind a mirror. Yeah. So, so he had an actual carry bag. I don't. I, I want to know more about that. It's very hard to find details, but apparently he had like bottles of this Noctec in a carry bag. So Von Einem went on an overseas holiday during which time the investigation really ramped up. So as they couldn't find much information, the police also searched for a man who previously claimed to the police during the murder of Ellen Barnes that Von Arnhem was also involved in his death. So just point out there, we've had now Ellen Barnes' murder. This is quite a while before. And we've had an informant now come forward. Yes. And now the police are returning to him. It makes you wonder, could this have been preventable? The police noticed that Barnes' fatal injuries mirrored those of Kelvin very closely. So, you know, they were getting hot on the trail. There was an informant who came to be known as Mr. B and he gave the police a lot of hot scoop. Yeah, so we're finally getting into these anonymous question mark bag overhead people now. Mr. B. Mr. B told the police in great detail how Von Arnhem would pick up male hitchhikers. So now we're going back a bit. Yes. So he essentially admitted, he was a witness to this, that all these young guys earlier in the decade or the 70s were being picked up by BVE, Von Einem, because I'm not going to make a mistake like Sam. Von Einem. See, I can say it. <laughs> would, um, would be drugged and then taken home. And Mr. B is also the one who gives a bit credibility to the family. Yes. Because he, he's the one who says that when these guys come home, they're drugged and they get raped by Von Einem. Mm-hmm. It's also many other people who come and do it as well. There's enough evidence to suggest that Von Einem and Richard Kelvin did in fact you know, have an interaction. And there's more you can read about it. I think Mr. B even talks about seeing Von Einem with some of the other murder victims. He's given the police everything they needed and more. Although I shouldn't say that because it wasn't enough to convict Von Einem of any other murders. And to put it out there, Mr. B hasn't been identified to this day because of immunity provided to him for this testimony. On the body, in case you missed this, on the body of Richard Kelvin, there were distinctive fibres. Um, I think some were aqua-coloured, acrylic type of fibers that were found on his body as if, you know, he had just been lying on something. Mm. And so the police had actually gone into BVE's house and taken fiber samples from his carpet, from his bed. 
Yes, and this was found on Kelvin's body and clothing. So this was the link that they needed. And I think there were also hair fibres found as well. So, you know, there was DNA and Von Arnhem's probably obscure carpet. So, you know, there was, there was enough to be like, okay, he was definitely there. We can't deny this. This is when he's... he's, he's st- so initially he was saying during the initial interrogation that he did not know Richard Kelvin. Is that right, Sam? Yes. He denied any knowledge. He's played the flip-flop game a couple of times. Very compliant... I'm, you know, saying I knew nothing about these people. But the police then do start to confront him with this evidence and he, he, he changes his tune. Police arrested and charged him with the murder on November 3rd, 1983. His alibi starts to break apart, essentially. The committal hearing to determine if there was enough evidence to charge Von Einem began on the 20th of February, 1984. So he had, there was the evidence from prosecutors suggesting that Calvin was in his company, I guess because of what Mr. B had said. Then Von Einem changed his alibi um, and said that he actually was in contact with Richard Kelvin on the night of June 5th, 1983. And then it gets really weird as well because Von Einem starts trying to almost... I don't he says that, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. He starts saying things about Kelvin's sexuality, like that he had bisexual tendencies and things like that. As and that he had f- daddy issues or something, school issues, and he was putting his arm around him to comfort him. Yep. Like kind of this young guy... 15 years old. Let's who had a girlfriend, went to kind of gay sociopath's house to cuddle him and tell him about his issues. That's yeah. that's what Von Arnhem essentially says. Von Arnhem was also originally charged with the murders of Ellen Barnes and Mark Langley, but there wasn't enough evidence. But by 1991, those charges were both withdrawn. This is a bit technical, but the reason... Okay, the official reason I think Ellen... We'll get, we'll get to the, the, the outcome of the trial, but this is when the forensic evidence of the fibres really, really clinches the case. Mm-hmm. Because we have BVE here saying that, you know, this victim had seen him days prior to the murder. Um, and the forensic evidence indicated that he was just lying on something a short time ago. And if he had left, then there wouldn't be any fibres on him. Yes. So it's implying that he was there for a little bit longer than what... Well, yeah, they said... I think they just said that it wouldn't really... To have the amount of fibres... What Einem was saying. Yeah. It just w- for a quick cuddle... On the end of the bed and yes. then off into the day. You don't end up covered in DNA and carpet fibres if you just, you know, sat down for 10 minutes and gone home. Like we're, reco- we're recording this on the floor of my apartment. so we're probably gonna I'll be- have some of Sam's fibres after this. So <laughs> Yeah, you will. That will be the key to this case if anything <laughs> happens to me. Look, it's me who is at risk here, Finley. Don't Sam try- does have a lot of anger towards me in case you haven't picked that up yet. But he's no, working on it. I'm, I'm working through it. I'm working through it. Nice slice into my personal life for anyone who is wondering. So, <laughs> um, We're so, up to the trial now, yes. which you're trying to like explain because it, it gets very complex. Yes, it's very complicated. The trial began in South Australia at the Supreme Court on October 15, 1984. So, of course, when I'm pleaded not guilty. Yeah, so when the family were told about this, they, they said, uh, so number one, he has a girlfriend. Not saying that that's, you know, definitive evidence that someone's not same-sex attracted. Of course not. That he had a girlfriend. Why would he get into the car of a stranger? Apparently he was like a very conservative, like well kind of adjusted young teen guy. And none of the alibi that Von Eyman was giving across was making any sense. Yes, I think everyone was just getting kind of offended at the absurdity of what Von Eyman was saying, basically. And is this when he starts to kind of, Von Eyman pitches him as a bisexual? Yes. That his parents didn't know about his bisexual urges. Yes. Well, I mean, whether or not this was true, the whole story, it's not really painting him in a great light regardless, is it? Pharmacists who were called in as witnesses 
um, gave evidence of the amount of drugs that Van Arnhem had been prescribed. Um, so he'd been prescribed 5,172 tablets and capsules of six different brands of drugs between December 15, 1978 and August 10, 1983. And just to stoke the conspiracy fires here, you know, as, as a doctor, I don't know where you get all those hypnotics or sedatives from. Was he paying for them? Is there someone else involved? How near and how close to impossible would it be to do this in present day? Well, you know, I suppose there's a price for everything, Sam. What's oh. your price? What money can't offer, but my body can. No, but that's a ridiculous number. Yeah. Thousands, come on. And stuffed in a duffel bag. Yeah, so it's all seeming... Like, I just think everything about one item is, like, almost hilariously suspicious. Like, it, none, what he did is not funny. But the fact that he just thought he'd get away with such carelessness and that people... But, I mean, I guess, contextually, this homosexuality was so taboo or deviations from quote-unquote normal sexuality were so frowned upon it during this period. And maybe uh, I, Saying someone's bisexual might be enough to discredit them. I don't know. I agree with you. And also, Sam, what what are... How does this kind of culture that's happening in this family kind of translate over into the modern day? I think it's not that far from what certain nightclub owners and promoters, even where we're from, there are... It is almost like a cult. Their inner circles are almost like a cult. And you hear all kinds of stories about young boys being preyed on. And also, this is a time, don't forget, before Grinder, So we've seen some, I suppose, similar cases... With, with, with some themes that are associated with this targeting of particular demographics or tribes, inverted yeah. commas. <laughs> What's your tribe, Finley? You've Finley. already said that I'm the boy next door. I'm sweet and perfect. Uh, Why yeah, do you think I'm maybe, so sought after? Maybe in an alternate reality. Uh, Von Arnhem maintained the story that he did pick up Kelvin in North Adelaide and drove him home, he said. So, this, you know, the story, you know, changes. Well, so, it changes all the time. When, did he, when, when was he driving him home? I thought he had nothing to do with him. Yeah. Then he was cuddling him on the bed. Now look, he's driving him all over look, the place. Yeah, essentially he's, he's a liar. Yes. And then his alibi for the period where he, um, Kelvin was missing was that he was in bed sick with the flu. Coincidentally, he didn't come into contact with anyone, although he did apparently attend a family birthday party. But, you know, someone can be tied up in the basement while you do that. Yeah, so I don't really know what he was doing during that week of having the flu. Yes, but the prosecution, like us, caught on to this. They basically called him a bullshit artist. They said that his story was full of lies and inconsistencies, but that they didn't think that he acted alone. It makes me feel re- terrible for Richard Kelvin. I have no idea what was happening to him in that period. And if the forensic evidence is anything to go by, it, it just sounded horrific. It's just a kind of ironic twist of fate, I guess, that Von Island was in a way, partially responsible for um, the repeal the law of... Changing. The law changing. law changing. For de- the benefit of gay people. Yes, to decriminalise homosexuality but, in 1975 by assisting this man and drawing attention to the murder. But also fulfilling this horrid, murderous, sadistic, gay stereotype. Yes, yes. and then he ends up being the reason that the, paro- the non-parole period got extended to 36 years because the judge did not want him getting out and so at the time, it was 24 years, non no parole, and now it's 36 because of Von Arnhem. So he's actually been eligible for parole. He's never applied. I don't know what the story is there. I've heard through the grapevine, it's unlikely the state of South Australia will ever release him. No, a former premier of South Australia said that they'll never, he's never getting out. Like, kind of, I'll see to that. This guy kind of is the gay monster that homophobes of the past used to worry about. There was also some speculation that Von Arnhem was involved in the disappearance of the Beaumont children. We won't get into that case because it's not Sinister Sissies related. These victims don't really fit his MO. They were, like, I think two sisters. And they were girls. Yeah, two sisters and a brother, I think. He was into smooth teen boys. Yes, they weren't quite. It doesn't really fit the MO. They weren't quite his market. 
What's old mate Von Eyman up to? Or BVE, as Finley uh, somewhat affectionately calls him. Um, he's still in prison, never got parole. So February 4th, 2007, ABC reported that Von Arnhem had been charged. Oh, he's up to no good in jail. Yeah, he'd been charged for commercial dealings during his incarceration because in Australia you're not allowed to profit from a crime. And apparently he'd been selling hand-painted greeting cards to the prison guards for 20 bucks a pop. So that was a big no-no. In June 2007, there had been reports that Von Arnhem had been charged with producing and possessing child pornography in prison. Apparently he'd been writing some erotic fiction that described the sexual acts between a man and a child. His lawyers believed the handwriting analysis would clear Von Arnhem, and he was eventually cleared of having written this. But he was uh, given extra time for legitimately having child porn. Yes. And it, on the 28th of March 2008, ABC reported that child pornography was found, and his sentence was increased by three months. I'm sure he really, really cares about that extra three months. Then at 2019, jump forward 10 years. So Debbie Marshall, she's a crime journalist. Um, she interviewed Von Arnhem in 2019. This is the big one. Yeah, twice. This is the hint of... Uh, the case actually coming to light again. Yeah, so tr- and Deb Marshall is very passionate, I'm just going to put it out there, about the family being real. Yes, Deb Marshall's like a true crime journalist who I think her ex-boyfriend was murdered, so she takes a real interest in trying to help people find And she's closure. kind of like those, you know, typical investigative journalists who start with one murder and then they go, oh my God. Look, their first interaction was positive. The second one left her like chilled to the bone. Their third interaction never happened because he didn't agree to it. But I'm guessing... Yeah, I think, I think um, in the second one, it's when she started to like hammer into him. Yes. And she said that she saw the psychopath come out basically. And this is when he again was saying, well, he was bisexual. Yes. He said everyone painted him as a straight boy, but he wasn't. If you're not straight, getting a wattle shaped object jammed up your rectum until you bleed to death is somehow like your justification. Yes, it's very odd that he kept on using his defense. But other than this interview, Van Arnhem hasn't really he doesn't really get on the interview circuit. So we don't we haven't heard he's a very mysterious entity. Um which I guess goes with the whole MO of the family. Like is the family real? Is it not? And we know it's oh, he's never admitted to anything. Yeah, we know he's it's never admitted to this murder. Yes. Let so, alone anything else. He 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 still denies it. And also a lot of the um the details of this case, you know, the the fact that people had surgical incisions that were sutured up, like the the use of um, multiple drugs to keep people sedated for weeks. These are not like easy tasks. Shoving, I think some of the victims were quite tall. They were fairly strong. They weren't young boys. Um, you know, the idea that they, they were pushed into the back of the car and just made to submit like this. It's This is what really piques my interest in this being more than just an accountant in the suburbs. If there's one thing that Von Arnhem has been consistent at, it's lying and withholding the truth. But there is a really interesting website that Finley found that goes into a lot of these theories that we've been talking about. And, and apparently we can't bring them up because the, the, the show's lawyer wouldn't be happy with it. But, <laughs> um, you know, and we will just say allegedly. But allegedly. What's, but what's the... Emphasized web- allegedly. Well, the issue repeatedly, is that this, allegedly. this website has dug up suppressed information that's still technically supposed to be suppressed. So if we say it, we could get in yeah, trouble. So if you- <laughs> So if you want to go more into the family, really, this idea of the family, you want to start seeing some of the connections to the wider network, this is what this website alludes to. Go to the website familymurders.com. Yes, and you can dig up all kinds. I was actually I was legitimately chilled to the bone when I read some of this stuff, so please check it out. Read the diary section in particular. You know, it's it has a lot going on. Yeah, and if you do have any theories about the family or any similar stories that, you know, you think need some more light shed, we are always here to shed that light or try to. Because it seems like with the, with the family murders, you know, almost all of the sleuthing the last few years, because it's kind of been quite cold for the most part, has come from cyber detectives, people who are just, you know, people like you and I, Finn. 
And the Family Murders website is very cyber detective. Yes. So check that out. Some final creepy trivia. Alan Barnes, the first victim, his brother Ross went missing while walking his dog in 2015 and he's never been seen again. That's frightening. So, you know, not saying... You know more about that than me, Sam. I've not heard that fact. That's trivia to me as well. And... That's a little frightening. Yeah. So not saying this has anything to do with the family, but, you know, just a creepy tidbit. So he's a missing person, basically. So, you know, there's something to well, leave you all pondering on. Well, are you... Um, you're making me a bit nervous, Sam. <laughs> Genuinely. Some of the people, like, suggested to be in the family are pretty powerful. So if you become a missing victim or person, or I do, I don't know what to say. Maybe go looking for prescriptions of something. I'll be sure I tag you in the promotions to this episode so that there's a 50-50 chance that I'll make it. Thank you for listening to the Sinister Sissies podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at sinister underscore sissies. You can follow Jared on Twitter if you're just missing Jared and want to say hi at Jared Bartle. That's Jared with two R's, a Y, and a D. Until next time, stay sinister. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.